everybody. Welcome to the New Market Alliance Church Podcast. For more information on the vision, programs, and news of our church, be sure to check us out at www.newmarketalliance.ca. We'd like to encourage you as well that no podcast, no matter how good, can substitute for the experience of joining together in person at a worship celebration. That's where God really meets people, often through the love and ministry of others. At NAC, we meet every Sunday at 10 a.m. Now let's join this week's teaching. Good morning, everyone. For those who don't know me, my name is Glenn. I am the youth and worship pastor here at NAC. Um, we're going to continue in our study in 1 Corinthians, so if you would turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 8, whether it's in your Bible or uh, on your phone, whatever it is, we'll meet there in a couple minutes. But first, I have a story. So I have this four-year-old niece who has recently discovered the wonder of hide-and-go-seek. Parents, grandparents, you can probably follow along with where I'm going to be going. So every time I see Bronwyn, she comes and tells me, come, let's go play hide-and-go-seek. So side note, it amazes me how much control a four-year-old, she's like this tall, has over me. But anyways, I decide, yep, I'm going to go play with her. So there's a couple problems with this arrangement, though. Firstly, she has exactly three hiding places that she uses every single time. Secondly, for whatever reason, she's decided that hide-and-go-seek involves having the taboo buzzer in her hand and eh, 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 the entire time. (laughs) So within about four seconds, I know exactly where she is, and now I have two choices to make. I can either spoil her fun and find her right away, or I can entertain her lame version of this game. So naturally, I choose to entertain her. I then spend the next few minutes wandering around the house, looking in every possible place that I know she is not, and then I finally get lucky, and I find her. She then proceeds to let me have a turn, but tells me where I'm going to hide, and gives me the buzzer. (laughs) Here's the point. I obviously know how to play hide-and-go-seek. And for the record, the reason I think she asked me is because I'm the most fun uncle ever. (laughs) But in those moments, I can either tell her the truth about the game and how she's playing it wrong and show her the right way, or I can be a good uncle and love her well by entertaining her childish version of the game. So as I said, we're going to continue in 1 Corinthians today. We've been going, working through chapter by chapter the first, uh, for the past couple months. Uh, if you've been with us at all over that time, you might remember that the city of Corinth is a happening hipster urban city. Most of the Christians in Corinth are new, young, fresh believers, and the predominant issue that Paul is dealing with in his letter is this idea that they can do whatever they want because, well... God's got my back. So far, we've talked about disunity, sexuality, um, discipline, marriage, singleness. Corinth is a very secular culture, while also being very spiritual at the same time, in the sense that there are a lot of people worshiping a lot of different false gods and idols. There are dozens of temples, altars, um, (coughs) and statues to other gods. While this church that Paul is writing to, this Christian church is probably the only one in the city at the time. 
So Paul starts his next section of his letter to the Corinthians the same way he started chapter 7. He says, now, verse 1, now, about food sacrificed to idols. So as a reminder, Paul had received an oral report as well as a letter from this Corinthian church with some concerning problems and beliefs that they had. And he's beginning to carefully address these problems with what they've written him, which brings us to this chapter. In that letter, they had written to him questioning about what to do with food offered to idols. So if you're new to church or you simply don't really know what that means, let me unpack it. In our culture, we don't really have temples where we go and offer animals to idols or gods. It's not our thing. But in Paul's time, it was extremely common. There were pagan temples all over the place where people worshipped idols and gods that ultimately didn't exist and were often carved out of their own hands. The Corinthian culture was full of these different gods and temples. And in order to please these idols so as to live a peaceful life, have everything go their way, have your crops grow, have your children prosper, uh, they would offer animal sacrifices to their gods. Now, when they sacrificed an animal, only part of it was offered as a sacrifice. There was another part that was used in a temple ceremony, and then the rest of it was sold in the Corinthian marketplace for consumption at home. Think of like your local butcher shop, grocery store. The majority of meat that would have been sold to these places were from animals that had previously been offered to these idols. So whatever the perspective the Christian church in Corinth had on all of this, this is what they have in mind when they're writing, what do we do with this food offered to idols? And so Paul jumps right in with his response. We know that we all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know, but whoever loves God is known by God. Okay, okay, Paul, what? We're talking about food offered to idols. How does knowledge and love have anything to do with that? We want to know about meat. Can I eat this stuff at the grocery store or not? Meat, not knowledge. Is the Big Mac good to go or not? <laughs> and you can just sense Paul going, I'm going to answer your question, but I need to address something else first. In verse 1 there you see, we all possess knowledge in quotation marks. This is indicating it was probably a commonly used slogan in their time. We saw this a couple weeks ago in chapter 6, verse 12, where Paul quotes there saying, all things are lawful. It's these things that the Corinthians have sayings among them. So Paul addresses this quote that we all possess knowledge. We don't yet know what knowledge he's referring to, but again, Paul has to address a bigger issue before we get to the issue in the letter. And so he continues. But knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Let's look at this word puffs up. Paul is saying that his knowledge, that this knowledge that they have, it's puffing them up, it's inflating them, it's making them think highly of themselves, it's arrogant and pride. Dang, he's saying the Corinthian church is full of pride. I don't know about you, but when I read through Scripture, both Old and New Testament, I see very few things that anger God more than pride. Proverbs 8.13 says, To fear the Lord is to hate evil. I hate pride and arrogance, evil behavior, and perverse speech. 
Proverbs 11.2, when pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with humility comes wisdom. Proverbs 16.18, pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. James 4.6, but he gives us more grace. That is why scripture says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. 1 Peter 5.5, 5, all of you clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Luke 14.11, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Those are just a few snapshots of God addressing pride. Essentially, when Paul is saying, or when the Corinthians are saying, knowledge, sorry, when Paul says knowledge puffs up, when you break it down, it seems like he's saying, this knowledge that you have, it's actually making you prideful, and it's actually putting you in a place of opposition with God. And then if we continue, Paul says, while love builds up. Think carpenter or construction worker. When you're building a house, what are you going to do? You're going to start with your foundation, then you're going to build your studs and your joists, and you're going to make a sturdy, strong house, at least hopefully. I talked a couple weeks ago about some houses we saw that the you know, foundation was a little hairy, and they probably bent the level a little bit while they were doing their thing. When Paul says that love builds up, he's saying that love lays a foundation and builds a strong frame. Love edifies and encourages others. So here we have two contrasting ideas. Knowledge puffs up. It leads to arrogance, opposition with God, and destruction, not only to you but to others, while love builds up. It makes us sturdy, strong, and encourages others. Paul continues in verse 2. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. Paul is saying that the person who thinks that they are in the know, by that very fact, has revealed that they don't yet have real knowledge. Let me give you an example from today. If I were to say to you, I'm really humble, or I'm really wise, are you going to believe me? No. It doesn't give me any credibility. It actually does the exact opposite. You're going to think, wow, humble, yeah. You're going talking all about your humility. You're going to think I'm an arrogant fool. And no, keep your comments to yourself, Dan. <laughs> the person who thinks that they have knowledge is self-deceived. True knowledge has eluded them. Doesn't this remind you of the Pharisees? They actually did have superior knowledge. Like, the Pharisees had the first five books of the Bible was memorized. That includes Leviticus. But they continually put their superior knowledge of the laws and the prophets, or our modern-day Test Old Testament, over everything and everyone else. They allowed their knowledge rather than their love to determine their actions. And how many times have you heard us say here, who did Jesus seem to have little tolerance for? So when Paul says, those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know, he isn't saying that they're lacking some content, but they're lacking real knowledge itself, which points to the next statement. But whoever loves God is known by God. In the earliest uh, manuscripts, the more literal translation would be, if anyone loves, this person truly knows, or this person is truly known. He's saying true knowledge is not about the accumulation of content or information, or as we'll see, it's not even about having the correct 
theology. It is the way that one has learned to live in love towards all. Paul would say that is true knowledge, learning to live in love. True knowledge is inseparable from love. John Piper may say it best. If you have knowledge that is making you proud rather than loving, you really don't know anything. So here we are now, what, 10 minutes into my talk, and we still haven't got to the issue that the Corinthians raised. Or have we? Let's read verse 4 to 6. So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. Paul is agreeing with the Corinthians. He's saying, an idol is nothing at all, and there is only one God. He's saying, you guys are dead on. Our God is the one true God, and the idols or other gods don't exist. If our God is the only God, that means by nature, other gods aren't real. Though Paul was acknowledging that there were many gods in this time, such as Isis, Serapis, Asclepius, in the sense that these gods exist in the minds of those who have given them a pseudo-reality by believing in them, but they don't exist in objective reality. Just as, i got to be careful, are there any children in here? All right. Just as Santa Claus... exist in the pseudo-reality of your children's minds, it doesn't mean that he exists in objective reality. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. <laughs> Hope I didn't ruin somebody's day. In this culture, many, many gods were worshipped as if they were real. And in verse 6, Paul says, Yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. Paul is saying, sure, there are other gods and lords that your neighbor and cousins and family are worshiping. But none of these alleged gods or lords have anything to do with creation, sustenance, redemption of the world, as God the Father did, because they don't exist. In verses 4 to 6, Paul seems to be agreeing with and encouraging their, theo their theology that there is only one God and idols don't exist. In essence, Paul is saying, when you wrote me about eating food to idols, food offered to idols, your theology was exactly right. That food offered to a non-existent God has no effect on the food. But while your theology is dead on, what you are doing with your theology, what you are doing with your knowledge, is dead wrong. He jumps right into verse 7. But not everyone possesses this knowledge. So now he's just connected us back up to verse 1. Verse 1, the Corinthians have this quote saying, all of us possess knowledge. But now he's saying, not all of us actually do. Finally, we're getting to the point. The Corinthians seem to think that everyone is on the same page, that everyone knows the idols aren't real so we can just freely eat all the meat we want 
even if it was offered to one of these other gods. Paul stops them dead in their tracks and he says, here's the problem. You guys think everyone has this knowledge, but in reality, there's some among you that don't. Continuing in verse 7, he shows them this. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. You see, the early church is growing so rapidly that the church is full of all kinds of people from all kinds of different backgrounds. And guess what they're bringing with them? Their stuff. Their previous beliefs. Their sin. I long, we as your pastors, long for our church to be grimy. I long for this to be a place where the people of the world are coming in and meeting Jesus. You know what happens when lost and broken people start coming to our church? They're going to bring their stuff. So you walk in one Sunday and out front there's a couple people smoking pot. What do you do? Matt Chandler, a pastor down in Texas, tells a story of a young woman who worked in a strip club. And she started coming to church, and then she started bringing her stripper friends. Do you know who dresses like strippers? Strippers do. So now he starts getting these emails saying, hey, man, you need to say something about how women are dressing around here. And Matt's going, why don't you deal with the lust in your heart and your own sin and see women as sisters instead of something to be consumed? We need to rejoice that the grimy are among us, or we might as well shut the doors. Jonathan talks about it all the time. If we want to see Jesus transform our family, our friends, our coworkers, our city, we have to be willing to be uncomfortable for the gospel. The more tidy and clean and smiley and shiny and perfect our church is, the farther we are from the mission of Christ. And now, don't hear me saying, well, just give yourself over to griminess. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. The goal isn't for strippers and potheads and alcoholics and adulterers and whatever you're dealing with. The goal isn't for us to come in here and just stay in our mess. But by the grace of God, as we behold the glory of the Lord, as we look to Jesus, we are being transformed into the image of Jesus from one degree of glory to the next. It's not like flicking on a light switch. It's like a slow turn of the thermostat, one degree of glory to the next. So jumping back into our passage in verse 7, we see that the grimy are among them. There are people who just recently, maybe even as recent as a couple of weeks ago, were sacrificing meat to idols. When Paul talks about those being weak, let's not think of them as like scrawny little kids. Let's think of them as young, immature, um, new believers, recent converts. Remember, it's one degree of glory to another, a slow process. For these weak people, they're the ones I talked earlier about. 
that gave these false gods a pseudo-reality because they believed that they were real gods. And we see this all the time. When a Muslim becomes a Christian, surrenders their life to Christ, they oftentimes will carry with them some beliefs, habits, understandings uh, from the religion that they followed for years and years and years. Even in the Bible, look at the New Testament. All over the place, Christians are being converted from Judaism, and then they're trying to bring with them the ways, the laws, the rules, the commandments into Christianity. That's what the entire book of Romans is about. So among the Corinthian believers, there are those who are bringing with them their past of offering meat to idols. At this time, it was very common for pagans to fear what the gods might do to them if they neglect to worship him. So there was likely a tension within many of these former idol worshipers of, okay, I believe that there's one God, but I still feel the need to continue to worship these other gods because I've always done it. Paul continues in verse 8, but food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat and no better if we do. He's saying food's not going to bring you into right relationship with God. Whether you eat something or you don't, neither eating nor abstaining will affect your relationship with God. Only the blood of Jesus can do that. Verse 9, he says, be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. This verse really is the crux of the passage. In verse 4 to 6, Paul is saying, you're absolutely right, I'm with you. There aren't other gods, they don't exist. If you buy meat that was offered to these gods, it's just meat. If you take a cut of ribeye, which I will argue is one of the greatest gifts of common grace, and you offer it to a non-existent god, it's still just going to be a tender, delicious piece of meat. (laughs) Paul is saying, amen, brother. I am with you. Listen up. Just because you understand this and see no problem with eating this meat does not mean that everybody else is at the same place. You have the freedom and the right to eat the meat, but what's more important? The meat that you're eating or the fact that your freedom to eat the meat is actually causing your brother or sister to stumble. You see, for these weaker brothers or sisters, for years and years and years, they were eating this meat that had been sacrificed to idols. It would cause the weaker members to stumble because to eat it, they still have the habits and history that it actually was sacrificed to a god. Let me parallel to this to something today. Ladies, Say you're dating this guy, and he's like a real low life. He's not pointing you towards Christ. He's not trying to serve you or help you become the best version of yourself. He doesn't speak life into you. He's more interested in getting what he can get out of you than what he can give to you. You know the guy I'm talking about. Your family and friends see it's wrong, and slowly you begin to realize it too. Now, oftentimes there will be a disconnect between your head and your heart. So your head is saying, this relationship is toxic. He's not pointing me to Jesus, and I see no reason this will change. While your heart is saying, but he's so cute. And we're in love, and we have fun together. And what if there's nobody else out there for me? 
This is exactly what the weak, new to their faith Christians are experiencing. Their head is saying, I know there's only one God, but their heart is saying, but I've been down this idle road for so long, and if I eat this meat offered to this other God, then I'll actually be worshiping this other God. Verse 10 and 11, for if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. It's almost like theological peer pressure. The stronger believer is eating the meat offered to idols. So the weaker believer thinks, hey, if they can do it, I can do it too. But then once they do, their moral conscience is destroyed. Because of their past association with idols, it meant that a return to the worship of the God by eating the food offered to it will cause them to defile their relationship with Christ. Continuing with verse 11 and 12. So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Now, hold up, hold up. Paul, you're trying to tell me that just because I am exercising my freedom to eat what I want and what Christ has done for me, I'm not only sinning against my brother, but I'm actually sinning against you? And then their memories probably jump back to something Jesus said. Matthew recorded it in chapter 25, verse 45. Truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. As Jesus is nearing the end of his life, he takes all of the 600 and some odd commandments and brings it down to one. John, the best friend of Jesus, records it in 13, verse 34. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. As Jesus has loved you and I, we must love one another. What does that mean? How did Jesus love us? Well, he sacrificed his freedom. He was beaten and scorned. He was pierced to a cross with the curse of our sin literally weighing down on him with every breath he took until his life drained out of him. Jesus, you want me to love one another the way you loved us. So I got to lay down my rights and my freedoms for the sake of my brother or sister. That means even laying down my life. At this point, Paul is saying in verse 13, therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause them to fall. Paul gets it. Paul says, I will not let my freedom get in the way of my brother or sister. I will not let my knowledge cause my brother or sister to sin. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. I will sacrifice my knowledge in order to love my brother or sister. So what does this mean for you and us today? Chances are most of you didn't come from a life of offering animals to idols 
It's not really our thing in GTA 2019. So what is our thing? What are the things that we have superior knowledge about that may actually be destroying or causing our brothers or sisters to sin? Today's passage is really kind of about what we do with the gray areas in Scripture. There are a number of areas that Jesus is very clear about. Adultery. There's no debate around it. It is not okay to cheat on your wife. You were created for one only, to be one with only one. But then there are these other areas where it isn't so explicit. Drinking alcohol, listening to certain kinds of music, smoking or chewing tobacco, or now smoking weed, playing games that can but don't necessarily involve gambling, buying lottery tickets that support great causes, engaging in a wide variety of physical, sorry, premarital physical contact even outside of sex, and the list goes on and on. I believe through my study of scripture and Jesus' teachings that it is okay for me to drink alcohol. There seems to be a line of drunkenness, but even defining drunkenness is a bit fuzzy. So my personal conviction or my knowledge has led me to be okay drinking one or two beers while watching the game, Leafs game with buddies. But maybe you grew up in a house where your mom or dad abused alcohol. Or maybe you have different convictions from what you've read in scripture. Or maybe you're a recovering alcoholic yourself. If I invite you over for a Leafs game at my house, what is better for me to stick to my freedom and decide I'm going to drink my beer because I'm free to drink my beer? Or should I choose to love you and leave the drinks in the fridge because your conscience and your soul are way more important to me than getting to exercise my freedom. And if I were to exercise my freedom, I actually would be causing you to sin based on what I'm doing. Now, we also have to be careful on the other side of the coin. If you have made a choice to be a vegetarian or a vegan, bless you, enjoy your kale salads. Scripture is clear that we are free to eat meat. So unless you can come to me and we have a conversation about how I am legitimately causing you to sin because I am eating meat, I am going to continue to enjoy my bacon. You can't expect your choices or even your conscience to bind everyone else in the church to make that same choice if it isn't causing you to sin in the first place. You get what I'm saying? I saw a couple nods. I'll have some conversations later, I'm sure. As I wrap up, I just want to share a real-life example of this that I got to witness just a few weeks ago. As many of you know, we were up uh, with Rock, our youth group, to a winter retreat two weekends ago. Now, throughout this entire year, we've been, as a youth group, working through these big problems that people have with God. The problem of science versus God versus science. The problem of, did Jesus even really exist at all? Uh, is the Bible trustworthy, or has it been changed and tweaked and I can't trust it anymore. How can Jesus be the only way to God? What if, what about these other religions? You know, super light discussions. So one of our youth has loved these conversations in particular. He's been taking what he's learning and he's going to talk with his friends about it. 
he has like eight close friends who are atheists who always challenge his faith. And so finally, he has some facts and knowledge and concrete things that he can share with his friends. Well, over this weekend retreat, he felt God in a very real way press on him saying, I love that you want to defend me. I love that you want to argue for me. But these conversations can't just be about being right. I don't know why I'm getting emotional. (laughs) Proving your friends wrong and winning the argument can't be the point. The only way your friends are ever really going to know me, going to have a relationship with me, isn't going to be from proving them wrong. It's going to be from loving them and showing them my love through these conversations. Our youth gets it. He's got this great and true knowledge about Christ, about God. But even that knowledge can puff you up. He gets that he has to lay down his own knowledge and instead love his friend for the sake of his soul. I want to call the band back up. We're going to transition into a time of communion. Communion is exactly what we've been talking about this morning. That Jesus, though having perfect knowledge, though living a sinless life while facing every temptation we do, having perfect relationship with the Father, that Jesus laid all of that down for you and for me. What better news is there that our Lord and Father and Creator came down to this earth with you in mind, laying down his rights, laying down his freedom, his knowledge, so that you could walk away free, so you can have a relationship with him, and that you get to know the God of the universe. In a moment, you'll have a chance to come grab some juice and some bread, and we'll partake together. And actually, communion is another great example. We have juice, and we have uh, gluten-free bread because we love people. You don't need to have an alcohol version of communion for it to be legitimate. So we serve juice, and we serve gluten-free bread because we want to love people rather than exert our knowledge over So in a moment, you can come, take it, and we will partake together in a few minutes.